On the 3rd of December 2019, the Guild of Entrepreneurs came together at the magnificent Draper's Hall to present its annual Rawley Lecture. Alongside many of the masters from other livery companies, we were joined by 120 plus students from schools supported both by our own guild, but also those of those other livery companies. Bringing the day's events to a close, we had a panel session where invited entrepreneurs and a keynote took a wide range of questions from the floor across an equally wide and broad range of topics. I'm Margot Finn, and I'm going to ask each of the panelists to just briefly introduce themselves, Ruben you already know about. Um, and then what we're going to do, I'm going to pitch a question at Ruben to give the others just a moment or two to think. You can ask a question, you can pose an oppositional statement, you can take us in another direction, but within a quarter of an hour, I'm going to want students in the audience to be responding back. So I'm going to be looking around. I know from having done this last year, there will be a horrible silence when I do it first. But I also know from last year that uh, fantastic comments came back from the students. Um, so within a quarter of an hour, you're going to be engaging actively in this discussion that we're going to kick off here. But first of all, let me uh, just turn immediately to my left um, and just get you to introduce yourself a bit, and then I'll, we'll go along the line. Uh, my name's Peter Hewitt. I'm the immediate past master of the Guild of Entrepreneurs, and I've had the dubious pleasure of setting up my first business over 40 years ago, and I think it's fair to say I've not been employed since. So I've created a number of companies, um, I think uh, 13 public companies, although I didn't create all of them, but some of them. Uh, I floated a company together with my wife on AIM, and we built that up from nothing to 400 people and a 25 million turnover um, some 15 or 20 years ago. I think the, the other thing that I would say is when I sold my first business, uh, we did not have a computer. They had not been invented. Uh, an Amstrad word processor with twin floppy drives may be familiar to some of the masters, uh, but that was the extent of the, uh, the fourth industrial revolution. Now, I did have a mobile phone, but it was the size of a brick. <laughs> Well, I'm just going to briefly introduce myself before we turn to our two remaining panellists. So my name's Margot Finn. I'm a professor of history at University College London, but I'm actually not here in that capacity because in that capacity, I'm actually on strike today. One of the things that happens with an industrial revolution is um, conditions of labor change and people go on strike. But I have a second identity, which is that I'm the president of the Royal Historical Society and I'm not on strike in that capacity. So I'm chairing you as a president. To our next colleague. Uh, my name is Saran Pradhandasa. I'm a lecturer of uh, information technology management at Queen Mary University of London. Um, so I'm basically uh, the tech techie uh, in this panel, I guess. Um, but my background is quite interdisciplinary. Uh, with a computer science background, I kind of went into commercial law. So my, my PhD was in commercial law, and I kind of uh, identify myself as a privacy advocate. So I, I kind of uh, put both hats on when I'm uh, confronted with technology. Hello, I'm Joanne Zhang, and uh, also from Queen Mary. So my lecture in entrepreneurship at Queen Mary University, and I'm also the director of uh, Entrepreneurship Hub at School of Business and Management at Queen Mary. Um, before this live, I set up two companies, one in China before I came. Actually, the first company is Nantech at all. It's a traditional <laughs> trading company. Um, from the hometown of Alibaba. 
and I also set up a small digital education business in between. So I'm one of these people always have butterflies in my head. And that helps me also when I teach, sharing my experience is one of my joys. So thank you. So Ruben, I'm just going to take chair's privilege and pitch a question at you. Looking out at this audience, there are students in the audience who will see a fifth and a sixth industrial revolution in their lifetimes would be my guess. Now historians are notoriously bad at predicting the future, but the fourth industrial revolution is not going to be the last. So I suppose my question is, um, do you think that the basic um, skills and propensities and psychological profiles of entrepreneurs are really the same through the successive industrial revolutions? Or do you think the fourth industrial revolution demands a different type of psychological mindset or propensity? Uh, yeah, I actually think it does. I mean, it's not completely different. The mm -hmm. core of entrepreneurship, of starting your own business, is still the same. But things have start, uh, changed since the third industrial revolution. Mm -hmm. Like classic companies, like some of the ones I showed on my slide, they were very much focused on their own capabilities and how they develop products and then push them to the market. Mm -hmm. You see that now in an age where everything is connected and people get more of a voice, customers as well, there are much closer relationships between producers and consumers. Mm -hmm. Consumers want to be listened to mm -hmm. and almost demand that, pro that products are tailored mm -hmm. to their specifications. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the main changes that entrepreneurs have to face these days, listening to their customers uh, even more intensely than they did uh, in the previous century. So that might make um, human communication skills, perhaps, and attention to privacy issues uh, might then be something that might be more important now than would have been the case when Arkwright was doing um, spinning. Take us away with privacy. What do you think the big issue here is that we should be pitching out? So um, I would like to use the word prosumer because we are not just consumers, we are producers as well. We, uh, we are producing content. Um, those of you uh, who, who are engaged on social media, you are con you're creating content which are then kind of commercialized or uh, capitalized by a platform. So you're, you're not just a consumer, but you're a prosumer because you're producing this content. Um, and that, that kind of brings in this new issue, uh, whether are we really concerned about privacy because we are voluntarily taking part in this, giving our information, not just um, being tracked by commercial entities, um, so I feel like um, some, I think some of us, uh, and, uh, this was I think pretty much evident in the discussions, some of us lose this sense of do we really need to have privacy um, because we are getting benefit out of it. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's having that balance because privacy has to be uh, now more, more of a negotiated notion. Uh, we need to negotiate privacy in exchange of those goods and services. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's, um, it's, it's how we negotiate privacy and how we can use technology to negotiate privacy. Mm -hmm. And do you think that that is increasingly something that we're managing globally, or do you think that national distinctions, and I'm thinking you mentioned you started your first business in China, where a notion of privacy is very, very different than it is in the UK. So are these issues that are going to map out globally or is there going to be a UK solution to these questions that's fundamentally different, do you think? I 
I think one of the distinctive features of force industry revolution compared to the other previous mm -hmm. one, I think is the scalability of those ventures that they are able to achieve. So you see all this uh, business, um, Dr. Ruben suggested, talk about, they reached, they grow at the unprecedented speed and scale. And these are the opportunities, it doesn't happen in the previous. So think about Royal Dutch Shell, it takes 100 years to grow to become a company worth 200 billion, whereas Facebook takes them, what, 14 years mm. to become 500 billion company. And the scale is global. Think about Alibaba, because I know where he started companies very close to where my mother lived. And uh, 99, they started a company in China. At that time, people still called it uh, um, developing country, mm. <laughs> and it's worth the same amount of money as yesterday I was just checking, it's as Facebook. So mm. I think the definition of privacy, mm. we cannot, or the data issue more mm. precisely, I think, it's, it's cannot be restricted to regional anymore. Mm. It's a global phenomenon, so we have to think about, and it's connected world, so we get the same kind of information feeded throughout different mm. channels globally. Mm. Um, and that's one issue, how do we think about it? The other, I think, the regulation comes in here, and it also has to be in the, at a global level. Mm. And as we know, if we look back through history, Innovation is always ahead of regulation. Mm -hmm. That's just by nature. So by implication, I always tell my students who a lot of them are interested in social entrepreneurship. And I think in this generation, in your generation, when you think about setting up a company, the role of the social impact has to be in the number one position. Before you ask how much value this business will create to me, perhaps you should think about, we all should think about, is my business going to create value for the society or will that destroy it because of the scalability of a lot of this business potentially would uh, create? Regulation obviously brings us to government and we were having an interesting conversation <laughs> before this began in which you mentioned that for the first time really in a, a very diverse career, you are now working with the military in a way that you had never imagined before. Can you maybe talk us a little bit about that and about what's different about being an entrepreneur working with an admiral, which is not really how I tend to think of uh, Richard Branson, for example. No, um, thank you. The, it has been a, a, it was very opportunistic moment mm -hmm. where I'd been talking to um, a very se senior military character who should have been chief of defense staff and wasn't and was a bit frustrated. He was retiring from, from the army and wanted to get involved in the private sector. And so I was sort of, the, the things, and he had a vision um, to create this across the services uh, defense company. Um, and he found the private sector very frustrating. He didn't really know where to start. For me, this was bread and butter, how you set up a VAT and all this other stuff. But I didn't have his vision. And we sort of looked at each other and suddenly thought, actually, maybe this is a good combination. It's a slightly bizarre combination, but it's a good combination. So what we have is, a, is an embryonic uh, defense company that started in um, July this year that has um, an admiral, a general, an air marshal and a three star from the MOD. And there's, there's almost a joke there somewhere, but I can't think <laughs> what it is. Um, but nevertheless, it is a very, very powerful company. And in 40 years of having set up lots of businesses, 
I have never been involved in a business where it will be successful. Failure is down to us. So it is so unique having all these disciplines in one company, lots of single, single strand, but it is uh, unique. Now, my one big challenge, well, I've got two big challenges with the military. One is to get them out of the hierarchical mentality. So they get my co-chairman is a four star, the rest of them are three stars, therefore there is a hierarchy. Um, and the other one is to get them to reply to emails a bit quicker. So that is, that is my, those are my two challenges. Apart from that, absolute delight, a pleasure and a privilege to work with them. Their integrity is beyond question. No hidden agendas, like sometimes working with sort of random characters from the private sector. They are absolutely bang on and au point about what they're trying to achieve. Mm. I think what you've said picks up very much on what Ruben was suggesting about the need, if you're going to be an entrepreneur and going to have a partner, the difficulty and need of finding a complementary entrepreneur who has the skills that you don't necessarily yeah. have. And you obviously don't have the four stars, but you're bringing other things to the table. So I'm wondering for those of you in the audience, those of you who are um, here today as students, can you think a little bit about two things? And I want to attach this in a way to something you said about the, the social issues to do with entrepreneurial um, activity as well. If you're going to start a business, doesn't matter what it is, and you're looking for someone to be your complementary partner in that business, how are you going to go about identifying that person and choosing them in a way that doesn't simply entrench known inequalities in society? So Ruben, when you started us off with your faces of entrepreneurs, you pointed out something, well, they're all white, they're all men. They're all coming from a very limited section of society. So how do we choose complementary people who aren't just known to us, aren't just familiar? How do we create perhaps a, a broader range of entrepreneurial uh, skills by attaching to ourselves people who are good at something we're not good at, but aren't just maybe familiar? So that's a huge question that I'm throwing out at you. Let's start by dividing it up into bits. How would you, if you were starting a business, how would you choose somebody to work with you? Somebody's going to have to be bold and, and go for this. Come up with any business you like. I can see movement there. I'm now going to point at you until one of you decides to speak up. There's a roving mic. Roving mic, we'll just wait for the roving mic. Maybe if there was some sort of database of sort of people with similar interests and skills um, and you sort of work from there and maybe if sort of there was no discrimination on race, gender or background or upbringing and stuff like that. Okay, great. So you've turned to technology. You've turned um, immediately to something between the third and the fourth industrial revolution. You've then said maybe that database would have no discrimination, trusting to technology not to discriminate. What do we know about AI? Somebody who, here who's a techie? It's, there's, a, there's always bias uh, involved in technology. So uh, who you will be connected to as your uh, friends or even re who you who are recommended on uh, social media sites will be based on uh, a similar profile. Mm. So there is embedded bias in technology. Mm. So bias is human. 
So it's because bias is human and because technology is built by humans, it's also biased. So certainly what they always treat, uh, teach us at university is if you know your biases, at least you know that you're biased when you go into a database and when you go into social relationships to try and pick fellow entrepreneurs, for example. But I think it was really interesting. You've gone for the technological option. What are the non-technological options of choosing somebody to start a business with? How did you find your admirals? <laughs> um, no, he, he sort of found us, actually. But I think what I'd just like to, to go back to is I think one of the most important things is being able to identify and be honest with yourself about what your weaknesses are. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because what you need are people who are complementary to mm -hmm. you to make a complete package. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact I thought I was perfect when I was in my 20s, mm. I realized I wasn't. And Your wife probably uh, might yeah, have pointed that she, out she to you as well. Yeah, she was quite facilitated that um, uh, thought process. Um, but I was pretty arrogant in those days. Maybe some accuse me of still being arrogant, but in those days, I only wanted people around me who would agree with what I thought. Yeah. I did not want people who challenged me. And the ability to be constructively challenged, I think, is one of the most important mm. features of really successful mm. entrepreneurs. Mm. Mm. I think one of the things that I spend a fair amount of time doing is reading UCAS applications to university applicants. And one of the things I think is deeply wrong about the UCAS application, with which probably many of you are grappling as I speak or have, will grapple in a few years' time, is it asks you to talk only about your strengths, not actually about your weaknesses. And perhaps that's one of the problems of the ways in which we get people to present themselves, whether it's on Instagram, whether it's on Facebook, of, of, of not recognizing your limitations rather than just your strengths. One of the things um, when we teach, when I teach entrepreneurship, I emphasize group work. So mm -hmm. I think there's something about, A, it's about picking, if you like, the right partner to start with. The other is your ability of to lead a team. Mm -hmm. So this is one key part of entrepreneurial skills, which I think it can be practiced. So one of the things in, if they do group work or you do a group in future, write a piece of reflection to yourself. Yeah. Sometimes I do it myself. Dear Joanne, here's your weakness. You haven't done this well. Mm. Um, something for you to improve on. And this is for you, you can build on stage by stage. It doesn't get there in one step. So apart from, in addition to find the right partner, also on your part, how do you strengthen your repertoire of skills? Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. I'm going to ask um, the audience, and I'm only going to ask the audience that's under 25 years old. The rest of you I've just disenfranchised, just for the moment. Are you more worried by the fourth industrial revolution, or do you see the fourth industrial revolution as predominantly an opportunity? So I'm going to start with those of you who think the fourth industrial revolution is predominantly an opportunity. How many of you feel it's predominantly an opportunity? Hands up. A little higher, just so that we can see. So that's a pretty small minority. How many of you, because some of you may be neutral, I'm going to ask that third. How many of you think that um, it's a real worry, the fourth industrial revolution? Okay, so a lot of you are not voting. This is, this is, uh, this is not good. How many of you are neutral? Okay, so tell me why you're neutral, gentlemen here. 
Um, I think it's definitely uh, a mixture of both because we can see it as a um, almost a new sense of infrastructure uh, which can be built upon, but then we can also see it as a, um, a dampening upon uh, people perhaps in lower income jobs or lower productivity workers. So I think that there's definitely a mix between the two and that education needs to be reformed to enable um, the... Uh, the utilisation of this new infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. And do you have any recommendation to us, given the fact we're all educators, as to how we could reform education to better enable you to be able to manage the fourth industrial revolution? Um, I think we need to be able to uh, um, just, we need to have skills about for um, these new technologies which are evolving, as opposed to um, things which potentially could be redundant in future years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Good. Thank you very much. Now, is there someone in the audience who voted that they were more worried about the fourth uh, industrial revolution? Somebody who really thinks this is um, not necessarily a good thing for your future. Somebody be bold. The lighting here is dreadful. Gentlemen there. I think it's predominantly going to uh, worry because I think it will... The fourth industrial revolution will enable people to sort of streamline their business so they can lay off workers because they can mm. use technology where they previously had to use workers. So it's going to concentrate more money in the hands of less people and a lot of, I think, mass un there may be mass unemployment in many sectors. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, in, in your reading pack, uh, one of the interesting um, uh, possible responses to that worry that a number of governments are now thinking about and a few are beginning to implement is this you know, basic payment in which you wouldn't need to have a job because everybody would have a subsistence payment. But then the question is, is work perhaps not good for one? Is having that structure, that communication for people good for one? So it's not just about having the money that a job provides, it's having these other things that a job provides, social stimulation. So that's obviously a real worry for some people. What about somebody who's absolutely gung-ho about the fourth industrial revolution? Somebody who really thinks that it's overwhelmingly a good thing. Was there anyone in the room willing to say that? Yes. I think that although there is a high chance of lots of jobs being lost to technology and kind of robots taking over, I think it will provide more opportunities for people to engage in different fields and take part in things that they wouldn't have taken part in maybe 50 years ago. And can you think of a couple of examples that you might give us what, as you're looking forward of how you think that might play out in your life? Maybe even more people analysing data rather than... And the example of less people doing manual labour or that kind of quaternary sector. Mm -hmm. So you think it might be um, leading to a higher proportion of uh, jobs that by the nature of technology itself actually require um, uh, higher levels of intervention, higher levels of skill? Uh, not necessarily higher levels of skill, mm -hmm. but maybe different skills. Different skills, yeah. 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 As an historian, I always say we're dreadful at predicting the future, so what those different skills are going to be is, is the nine million pound uh, question. Did you want to add to that? Uh, I think when I, when I kind of reflect on my own uh, self, today morning when I was coming, when I was going to the university, I was, uh, I was using the chatbot, and I was thinking, well, that chatbot uh, basically replaced someone's job 
Mm. Uh, I mean, think about the BPO sector, uh, which some developing countries are thriving on. You know, India. Uh, if you if you, you used to um, uh, call a bank, uh, mm. it's picked up by uh, by someone on the other side uh, of the world. Uh, now, AI is basically replacing all those jobs. Um, and, and, and that's, that's quite detrimental for certain societies. So, uh, so it, it is quite worrying um, when you think about it when, from an unemployment mm. point of view, uh, what it might do to some economies mm. uh, that are purely focusing on the EPO sector. Mm. Mm. Um, there's a, a wonderful book called um, High Tech, High Heels, which is about um, Barbados in, in the Caribbean, which in the 80s, I think it was the 80s, had a lot of data input shipped to it from airlines and credit card companies. And uh, women in Barbados in particular were trained up to do this work and were given uh, rewards of free air miles if they were very efficient and made very few mistakes. And they found, um, an anthropologist who did this um, study found that what um, a high proportion of the most successful women who were the best at data entry, so the best at the high level of what technology in the 80s looked like did, was they used these air miles taking empty suitcases uh, with their free air miles to Paris, to Miami, and to New York, filled the empty suitcases with cheap designer clothing, came back and sold them again and again and again, and set themselves up to be seamstresses. So they went from this very high-tech world to wanting to be their own women. They wanted to be people who controlled their own time, people who had those entrepreneurial spirits that um, uh, Ruben was talking to us about. Ruben, do you have any final points that you want to make or any questions that you want to throw out to our audience? Uh, not at the moment, sorry. No? No? <laughs> yeah, I would just like to, to ask the audience that something that, uh, having had a little bit to, be, to do with virtual reality and augmented reality, I would just like to, to ask the audience whether they think that... The, the advent of this technology and perhaps with the cheapening of it, it poses a moral dilemma to society. Not this year, not next year, but those on the margins will find that living in this alternative reality will become far more appealing than living in the world that they are living in. So the question really is, will this become the new dangerous drug of society? And there is a, a famous novel by uh, Aldous Huxley, Brave New World, which has a similar version of that question. So to the audience, is that a concern, do you think, that virtual reality, particularly in a universe in which there are fewer jobs or fewer satisfying jobs, might become the new reality for um, persons who uh, aren't enjoying the benefits of the fourth industrial revolution? Gentlemen in the back. Thank you. Um, you were talking, Peter, about the future, where you think uh, virtual reality is going to affect youngsters. Surely we should be teaching youngsters at primary school age that virtual realities are tools. They're not real. They're just tools. I'm currently working on a school where we're building an IT pod for just that purpose, to show that youngsters can work in a virtual environment, but it is a tool. When they want to go into the virtual environment, they go inside that room and then come out into the real world again. You know, I see no reason why we can't explain to youngsters that they are tools. You press buttons, humans control the machines. I suppose the question there is, the, perhaps the problem is, 
Um, you might be teaching students that these are only tools, but if it's more attractive, in the same way that a mobile phone can sometimes be more attractive than a conversation, it's hard to stem that tide. Yeah. So, um, I have a young boy. That's why this question is very close to my heart. So I think about, you know, when you grown up, he grown up, how the world will be, and what kind of skills we need to teach them today. And one of the things, there are many things I can talk about, but one of the things I keep reminding myself and emphasize to my students, technology always advances. If you look through the ages, and at initial stage, we are always human beings, this is our nature. We are uncomfortable with technology change. We don't want to change psychologically. Mm. But technology is used by people. As this gentleman said, it's a tool. So remind us, it's how we use it to the best of our benefits. Mm. And to, so for educators mm. in this particular sense, when do we hand over the tool to the students? Yes, how do we facilitate the use of it? Mm. So AI or machine learning, mm. all this technology come in this way, mm. but um, some schools have a policy. There's no electronic device at all. And I would tell, I actually debate with the headmaster and said, that's probably not the way to say we feel feared, mm. shattered. Mm. Rather is to say how we should use it and let people, young people, to learn and all the way through what are the skills that's necessary in this new era. Mm. And mm. just remember, we are the master of technology. Technology mm. is not mm. the master of us. Mm. Mm. Um, just to add to that point, I think, um, I think how I look at this is uh, the point about virtual reality is uh, we, are, we should not be slaves of screens um, through the advent of the television, to the computer, to the mobile phone, the smartphone, we are trying to hide behind the screen. You have these keyboard warriors, now people are more comfortable just, behind, just being behind the screen. And, and that's worrying because, uh, because we, we find in a day and age where you have a lot of socially awkward people. And that's worrying for me because uh, that's gonna affect democracy, that's gonna affect our fundamental values. Uh, people are too afraid to speak up. Um, I hardly find anyone calling my, my office phone. Mm. Something that mm. I recently re re realized, no one comes and knocks on my door, mm. I get an email. Everyone is comfortable behind the screen. Mm. And that's worrying to me because we are losing our sense of reality as humans. And we are, f we are more um, kind of, uh, absorbed into this technology. Technology is good, it's just that we need to always uh, realize that we have agency as humans and we need to know how exactly uh, to the point uh, Joanne mentioned how we are going to use that technology to our advantage while uh, it's not resulting in that kind of um, negative impact. We're shortly going to run out of time. Can I take another three minutes? Is that okay? Just on that, there's, yeah. a, there's a social startup and entrepreneur just to sort of towards the direction to nudge us back to the behavior of being mm. more human. It's called Hold. It's an app. If you download it, if you hold it, it will count how long you're not using the phone, especially you're in yeah. classroom, <laughs> and you get the point to buy coffee somewhere. So again, <laughs> see, so there are solutions yeah. using technology again to nudge us back to yeah. be 
human-centred. Yeah. Can I just say that doesn't it take so much longer to arrange a meeting yes. via email than it does picking up the phone? <laughs> I mean, the, the or walking down the hallway. Yes. Or that. Yeah. The amount uh, of conflicts uh, that you can resolve, uh, you know, if you just well, knock on the door and just yeah. say that's the yes or no, the, you know, it, it will solve so much of yeah. conflicts yeah. 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 at workplace. Yeah. I think in terms of um, your futures, um, you've, we've sort of mapped out some of the trigger points that we know are there because we're grappling with them you know, already. There's both you as an individual, you know, there's just you yourself, and there's that recognition of your, your, um, your ambitions, your personality. I'll, I'll call on you in just a sec. Um, there's also then the question of, if you then are going to be somebody who starts a business, and a business, of course, is communicating with customers, with producers, with others, how is that going to play out, and how can you do that socially responsibly? There's a question of government, and how much of this should be structured and limited by government, how much of it should simply be emancipated. The question of if it's going to be regulated, how it can be regulated, because it's gone global. And that's obviously the Facebook question, really, as we speak. And then there's the question of privacy. If you can't have privacy, how can you be a person who is self-actualizing? Um, so these things are all really tied up together. We're going to have two very quick questions. Uh, woman there with a pink uh, headband. Hi, thank you. Um, you talked earlier about privacy. And I was wondering, what do you think, where do you think the line is for that? What do you think people should be keeping to themselves? And who should they be keeping it from? Who, who how much... What is this information that we're giving too much away of? And how do you think we should be protecting it? So my notion of how I define privacy is through self-determination. Uh, I, I can decide who I want to share that information with and to, uh, um, to what extent. So I think it's, it's up to us to decide. Um, but, you know, uh, that, and that's why I, I, I kind of coined this uh, notion of... Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a negotiated term because I need to negotiate privacy in exchange of those services. Best example would be advertising. You know, you, you, we accessing the internet, all the free, of, uh, all the free services um, in, in terms of Google or Gmail, it's a free service, but we are paying with our data. So we are negotiating our privacy in that sense. So you have to really understand um, what, who's using this data, uh, for what purpose? Um, the problem. The problem that I see is none of us read privacy mm. privacy statements. You just click on the cookies. Exactly. Guess, yeah. So yeah. I think I yeah. think we have to be more educated. Mm. We have to be more mm. informed. Uh, what's happened to our data? Um, and if I, uh, to be honest, the answer is not to read privacy statements, but use technology that can actually do this for us. There are privacy enhancing technologies that are out there that can that can actually help us do this. So that has created an opportunity for other businesses to actually capitalize on that, uh, on that problem and create uh, um, new products to people. So mm -hmm. using technology to negotiate uh, privacy. I've got one more comment in the back. Do I just have time for one more? One more. Uh, gentlemen. Thanks very much. Yep. Uh, building on what you've just said, and Peter's original question about the, morals, the moral standing on this, um, every single person in this room who's got an iPhone probably is not aware that it has 13 transmitters on it sending data to people all over the world today. This is not artificial intelligence in the future, this is today. Every single person who has a Samsung smart television 
if you don't switch it off and unplug it from the wall and it's staying on with a little red light glowing, it is communicating data all the time about you, about your family, about your habits to people you don't know. This is the privacy issue. We need to be aware of what's actually going on now with this data and who is collecting it, why they're collecting it, what are they doing with it. That is a very sobering note for us to be ending on. Uh, those of us who are of drinking age will be glad that there is drink in the next room. I do not know what consolation to give the rest of you, but you have a panel who I know will be very, very happy to engage with some of these issues, answer questions in the reception. Thank you so much for attending and for answering.